Hello, my name is Tina Stoll. I'm also known as Baroness Stoll of Beeston, the former leader of the House of Lords. But this podcast is where I talk to people who don't very often get heard. Our fellow Brits who work hard, get on with life, are quietly successful and from whom we can learn a lot if we listen to what they've got to say. These are their stories, hopes and concerns about the world in which we all live and how they think it could be better. Welcome to today's Britons. Today, I'm talking to John Greenslade. John was born, brought up and lives in Middlesbrough with his wife, Kathleen, and their family. But like so many others from Teesside, he works away from home and has done so for most of his adult life. These days, John works on an oil rig in the North Sea. I'll explain how we know each other when he joins us in a moment. But first, let me explain why I asked John to record a conversation with me. We hear places like Middlesbrough mentioned quite a lot in the context of political debates about the so-called Red Wall. It forms part of the area where the widely acclaimed Conservative Mayor Ben Houchen has just been re-elected. Although unlike most of the seats which surround it, the Labour Party held Middlesbrough in the 2019 general election. But even though we hear a lot about Middlesbrough, we don't often hear from the people who live there. So I wanted to hear John talk about the area, how he has seen it change over the years and why he's starting to feel more optimistic about the future, even though things remain quite bleak in the town itself. A lifelong Labour voter, he tells me what he thinks about Ben Houchen and through what he says, I think we get a sense of how local people are drawing a distinction between national and local politics. Through his story, we also get to hear what it's been like for John and thousands more who haven't always been able to find work on Teesside and why their strong sense of identity is an energetic force and should be part of a prosperous future and isn't some nostalgic drag towards the past. I hope you enjoy listening to what John has to say and I'll catch up with you again at the end. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, Tina. Fine, thanks. Are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Okay, to introduce you briefly and explain how we met, you are what is known as a rigging supervisor, and for the last 25 years, you've worked offshore on an oil rig in the North Sea, just off the coast of Scotland. And in recent time, as you've explained it to me, the shift pattern means that you work offshore for three weeks and then come home for three weeks to Middlesbrough and your wonderful wife, Kathleen, and indeed your two adult children, James and Eleanor. As we're talking today, you're in Middlesbrough and tomorrow you're heading offshore again. As far as when we met, we first met in London in the mid 80s. And John's wife, Kathleen, and I became firm and lifelong friends when, along with another friend of ours, Tracy, we shared a room in the civil service hostel located in Bayswater. And after we moved out of the hostel, we then shared a flat together. 
Kathleen had come down from Glasgow, like I'd come down from Nottingham, to work as a secretary in the Ministry of Defence. And the three of us, together with other friends we live with in the hostel in Bayswater, would often on a weekend go to the pubs in Notting Hill Gate. And that's where we met a gang of lads from Middlesbrough, of whom you, John, were one. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so... Why don't you start by telling us what brought you to London in the mid-80s, when I think you were about 24, 25? Yeah, of the 25 age, yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, what was the situation like in Middlesbrough that meant that you thought the right thing for you to do at that time was to come down to London? Well, it was pretty dire at the time. There wasn't much employment. There wasn't many jobs going. A lot of my friends had moved down to London and were working. I was quite a family-orientated person. I've come from a big family, and I found it difficult to actually go away. But I realised I had to, to earn money, because there was no money to be earned. My previous employment at the Steelworks, that shut down in 1979, 1980. Then after a while unemployed, I worked at Teesside Bridge, which was a, a world-renowned engineering company, and that eventually shut down in about '84. So I was just unemployed. I needed to find work. That's why I went down to London. And what was the job? I mean, what had you been told was on offer down in London? Well, basically, it was labouring on a building site, uh, £20 a day, virtually just knocking walls down and clearing messes up and helping bricklayers and joiners. So it was hard work. It was tough work. And the, and the money was actually ridiculous looking back on it, £20 a day. But it was better than the £40 a week I, w- I would have got on the door. Mm. Had to stay at home, and of course you need your independence. You need to work, so that's why I went down there. And unfortunately, my friends had got me sorted with a job, so I had a job to go to, and that was it really. So they were already in London. Yeah, there, there was quite a few lads. I live in Ackland part of Middlesbrough. There was loads of lads. There was hundreds and hundreds of lads down there, but we all tend to stick to our own little groups. And the Ackland lads were more sort of West London, mm. so that's where we ended up around that area. I was working in Earl's Court, actually, the first job I got down there. Hmm. And it was okay. It was all right. It was, the work was hard. It was actually good crack going to work. <laughs> and you, and you met characters. And you weren't just working with lads from Middlesbrough. You worked with lads from all over the world. Yeah. Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans. You know what they were like for passing through London and earning a few shillings. And it was good. The money was ridiculously poor. But the job was good. The crack was good. I remember when we first met you, I can't remember precisely what pub it was in Notting Hill, because I know we'd sometimes go in the swan, but I can't remember what the other ones were called. But I I remember one of the things you saying when I asked you about coming down from Middlesbrough, and you said you'd come down on the Tebbit Express. (laughs) Yeah, well, I actually did. That's what we called it, because Norman Tebbit said, get on your bike, didn't he? Much to the disdain of people in the northeast of England, thinking that why should we need to leave home to make a living? But actually got the bus, the midnight bus down and went to work the next morning. So you literally got off the bus and went straight to work? Basically, yeah. And what were your reflections on London at that time, John? I mean, how did it, had you been to London before? I'd been to London for football matches, basically. Right. I'd had a weekend down there. I mean, London's brilliant, isn't it? It's it's eye-opening, it's eye-popping for people who have never been before. But once you start living there, once you you step off the beaten track. You could be anywhere. You could be in any town or city in England. It was an eye-opener at first. 
In what way? Well, just the way that everything was a million mile an hour. People were so unfriendly. Nobody ever spoke to you on the morning. If I go for a paper, I don't buy put them on a paper. Now, if I go for a walk in Middlesbrough on the morning, people talk to you. Strangers, good morning. If you say that to somebody in London, I think you're going to mug them or attack them or something. Just unfriendly and standoffish. We weren't used to that. I mean, I think when I came to London, I mean, we were living in Bayswater. You, you were living in Notting Hill, weren't you? That's where you'd got digs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I had a bed sit there, yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what was striking to me was, you know, as somebody new, not really having come to London much before, only on, you know, the odd sort of day trip, was that part of London was quite heavily dominated by non-Londoners, you know. So it seemed, you know, quite striking to me that it was a very, it was, it was full of foreigners, as it were. I guess that contributed to the sense that it was not necessarily friendly because, you know, I don't know, there were just people who were from a different country, I suppose. And it also struck me at the time, it seemed really dirty, London. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah, it was, yeah. We had, it was quite a lot of litter and everything everywhere, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did miss home. I mean, I, at first, I mean, I, I felt for me, I mean, coming from, you know, where I lived was quite a close knit sort of place, you know, where people would go in and out of each other's houses all the time and knock on the door, cup of tea. And that sort of, the fact that there was, because obviously it was central London, it wasn't a, a local area, but that not having any of that just seemed to me very foreign, very alien, very different. Yeah, there was no community feel about it. No. But there again, at one point, when we were in Notting Hill Gate, I had 15 mates from Middlesbrough. Yeah. We had our own little community there. I suppose we did what the foreigners did. We all just stuck together. Yeah, exactly. You know, that was it. <laughs> yeah, you're in the Acklam sort of area of Notting Hill Gate. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, our own little Acklam in, in London, yeah. West London. <laughs> I mean, after a, a few years, I mean, because you, you also then sort of got work in, if I remember rightly, in Broadgate in the city, sort of part of building sort of the construction team there. And you and Kathleen got more serious and you went to work in Paul for a while. Just just explain to us, because that I think was also part of you getting qualified as what you then were was a steel erector. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right, Tina. I decided that labouring on a building site was not my future. It was hard work. And I thought, well, you're going to be worn out by the time you're 45. And the money wasn't any good. So a few of my mates were working on Broadgate, which was a massive construction development at Liverpool Street. And they said to me, instead of just living on a building site, John, why don't you come as a handyman? We'll get you a job as a handyman. So the money was a lot better. And then when I seen the steel erectors, erecting steel, it looked quite glamorous. It looked frightening, mm. but it looked glamorous. I thought I wouldn't mind doing a bit of that. So I spoke to one of the uh, supervisors and he said, well, buckle down a bit and we'll show you go. We'll try and get you an improvership, which was like an apprenticeship for older people. So I did that. And then I got I got my first year in improvership. But unfortunately, that came to an end. So I was left in a bit of limbo. But my uncle, who was working down in Poole, he said that the company there, that was a company called AOC, which are an Aberdeen-based company. He said, they're looking for to take on improvers. He said, so I'll, I'll put a word in. And I moved down to Paul after that mm. and uh, finished my improvership off down there. Kathleen followed me to Paul eventually. And we had a nice life down there. It was good. I enjoyed the work. But again, that came, <laughs> came to an end. Oh, did it? 
Yeah, well, it was just a construction job. It was a, a petrochemical plant because of discovered oil just off uh, Pearl Harbour. It was a conservation area, so they had to be very careful about what they did there and what they didn't do there. But it was interesting work. Mm. And again, because of that, I ended up getting a lot. Again, there was loads of lads from Teesside on the job because basically we're industrial gypsies anyway. And you gained contacts then, so that always bears well for your future employment because it's not what you know, it's who you know, as, as we all know that. Mm. You make friends and uh, you look after each other, hear about the job, you get in touch, right there looking for men, they're looking for men. And that's what happened. So I got connections and that was good. But, it, but it, like I say, eventually that work ran out. And I think Kathleen would have stayed down in Poole. She loved it down there. But it wasn't a very industrial area. So I knew that my chances of employment in that type of industry would be limited. Hmm. So I decided that we'd move back uh, to Middlesbrough. So you returned home in your sort of your nomadic life. You decided to go back to Middlesbrough. So this was what the early 90s by? You'd been away what? Yeah, about 91. Yeah. So I'd been away for six years, basically. Obviously popped home every now and then. I went to see, went to see my family. And then we came home and we moved in with uh, my mum. She was on her own. And then I managed to get work in the local rig yard, Linthorpe Dinsdale. That was better known as Linden. So that what they were doing there, they were building oil rig modules. Obviously to go to the North Sea because it was still a bit of a boom on for construction of such things. And... Um, I worked in the yard there for about three years, I think. And that was good. That was a good job, that. So just to to understand sort of how things had changed. So when you'd left in the mid-80s, things were in a real dire strait in Millersborough and in the surrounding area in terms of jobs. But when you came back in the early 90s, things had started to improve again. Well, not really. Not not as such, because a lot of the big industries had collapsed. British Steel and even uh, ICI was was pulling out was but because I had a trade behind me, because I was no I was no qualified, I had better prospects of the job. So that's how I ended up working back at home. Right. On a decent wage. But in the meantime, all the main heavy industry was still collapsing around us. When I left school in nineteen seventy six, British Steel employed thirty thousand people on Teesside and ICI employed 40,000 people. So that's 70,000 people employed by two companies. But of course, this was all collapsing. Mm. The steelworks. The steelworks were have been on its knees for years, really. It was sustained by the governments. And I think people used to go mad about they were paying, exaggerate that everyone was paying for something like five, pound, uh, five pence in the pound tax extra because the steelworks were still open and it was subsidised and such. But what it did do, that it may well have subsidised, but what them subsidies managed to keep people employed and when people are working, people are spending. Mm. I mean, Middlesbrough in the 70s and up to, say, early 80s, it was quite a booming town because the steelworks were just being built, the new steelworks were being built. And you had contractors from all over the country working there. And they're obviously spending a lot of money. But then everything went. Once the steelworks collapsed, we couldn't compete with the Japanese for the price of steel. Mm. And we just collapsed. And everything collapsed around it. So then you've got to look for specialist type of work of uh, oil rig building, which that was developed on two sides. Because obviously there's been a shipbuilding history there as well, which all follows on from 
the other rigs fall fallen from that. Just a different type of ship, but basically it's the same sort of uh, idea. It's all the same work, welders, platers, riggers, mechanical fitters. So it's all that type of work. And Middles was renowned for its industrial heritage and its tradesmen. But again, that came to an end as well. The oil rigs, well, we couldn't compete with, again, we couldn't compete with the Asians for price. I think as well, when we've talked before, John, you've explained that you know, after you had started working there, and as you say, it was, it was going quite well. There was then that period when it was, the expectation was that oil was running out in, in the North Sea. And then sort of, you know, the powers that be changed their mind as to whether the oil was running out. But by this time, the construction of the oil rigs had moved to the Far East. Yeah, that's about right. But it it ends up as a false economy because the standard of work, the standard of the rigs that were coming out and the modules was far below what we were knocking out. Then you've got to put things right. I mean, even such things as a valve, the the valves are wrong specifications. So you go offshore. You end up having to change out loads and loads of valves, which cost, which is obviously economically it's not very good. But I always think that with the British industry, they're always after the fast book. They don't look at the big picture. I found that all through my work in life. Uh, when I started work at British Steel as, as a 16-year-old boy, the place was falling down around us, absolutely dilapidated. It had no investment, and they were still churning out records amount of iron and steel to that day. So if they'd invested, they probably could have been able to keep up with the Japanese, but there was no investment. Everything was falling apart, basically. What's your view as to why that is? I mean, you know, why do you think that, that these big British successful firms were not, you know, seeing the bigger picture and, and investing in the way that you thought they should? I just think they look for the fast book. Hmm. I think they, they always have British industry, British industry always has. To me, from being on the on the cold face, as so to speak, you don't seem to see the investment that should be there. Well, I mean, look at, we go back to the car industry in Britain. The Japanese were having robots making cars 10 years before we even went that way. We thought it was stupid. Where's our car industry now? Compared to the Japanese, they've took over the world with it, haven't they? Hmm. Because we didn't invest soon enough in getting the new equipment in order to t- produce it at, at the same sort of quality and rate. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, basically that's it, Tina. Yeah. Mm. So when the oil rig fabrication yards started to close, where you had been working for a few years once you'd gone back to Middlesbrough, what happened then, John? Well, then I had to st- start looking at work elsewhere. So then you, what you do then is uh, it's what they call shut down. So you'll have petrochemical plants that obviously need maintaining. They're maintained all the time right throughout the year, but every now and then, every year, they'll, they'll have to shut part of that plant down. Sometimes it's only a small shutdown and they'll replace just a few valves and a few pipelines and things. Other times, it's a massive shutdown and they'll be changing vessels and there's a lot of work involved. So you just jump around from job to job. I could be working down in Immingham or in Chester I didn't used to travel too far because I like to get home mm. at the weekend to see Kathleen and the kids. I mean, a lot of the lads used to go away for a month at a time and come home for three days, what you call a long weekend. So you'd be working in, say, South Wales, which is an eight or nine hour drive, and they'd get uh, three days off every month. Again, that's not ideal. Mm. And you're working long, long hours as well. It's very, very tiring. You're working 12-hour shifts a day then. 
and they are 12 hour shifts you know plus you're going to work coming back from work so there's another maybe two hours on it you know going back to your digs on a night mm. so i done that for quite a bit and i odd trip offshore so again you have shutdowns on oil rigs same principle to petrochemical plant in the middle of the North Sea, that's all it is. So you'd get maybe a trip offshore. But in the introduction chain, you said I'd worked offshore for 25 years. Mm. But for, for, for the first 10 of them, some years I might have only got three trips in a year. So I was in and out of work a lot. Right. And then you've got to be careful with your money then, of course, because you've still got your mortgage to pay when you're not working. So, yeah, just jumping about. You just try to you grab work. And again, I go back to my friends and workmates. Somebody always contacts you, right, John, there's a shutdown here, there's a shutdown there, so-and-so looking for men, so-and-so looking for men. And then you just pick the phone up, and if you're lucky, you get a start. If you're not, go on to the next job, you go on to the next firm. I mean, thank you for, for sort of, you know, highlighting the instability of your working life at that time. Sorry, because you're right. I mean, I, I was at risk of giving the impression that it had been sort of constant for for 25 years. But it's interesting as well to hear you say how you're all looking out for each other and making sure that you know about where there is work and that sense of, I suppose, like you say, it's, it's a community which is remains in place, but not necessarily stable or sort of present in Middlesbrough all the time, which is quite interesting really is a, of what community can mean, even if you're not all together, sort of, you know, constantly working side by side and going home to your families every night. Yeah, well, you do tend to look after yourself. And there is a, there's a camaraderie about the job as well. We all think we're better at the job than everybody else. And we, <laughs> we think we have a better standard of work. We probably don't, but we, we, we say we do. We, but I think we're very proud of our heritage on Teesside, of our industrial heritage and our construction heritage. And we try to keep that alive. And you look after your mates, you look after your mates and your mates look after you. So, yeah, there's a lot of camaraderie in it. So was there a point at which, you know, after doing all this various contract work and clearly, you know, it was short term and like you say, sort of lots of uncertainty at times, there came a point at which you did get some stability and certainty through work with a contract on the oil rigs that, you know, has maintained you for, for quite a period of time over the last few years. Yeah, the last 15 years uh, right. has been solid. But even now, as I speak, I'm only on a three-month contract. I've never had a, what you call a core crew job. So I've always jumped about mm. from uh, rig to rig. This rig I'm on now have been on for seven years. So, but even now, it's still a three-month contract. And in fact, I've only got a, a message the other day saying that um, we're going to be two-paid, which is basically you change your hat and your overalls, and the other company take you back on. But I have to reapply for my job, so there's no guarantee that when I go offshore, my job is is there, really. Obviously, I'm not going to go offshore if there's no job there. But what I'm saying is I could be unemployed in, a, in three weeks' time. So there's no stability at all. Mm. And especially offshore, it's, it's strange to explain because if you go into a place of work at home and you're onshore, it's down the road, you're there every day. And if you have any problems, you've got people to speak to there and then, and you'll get an answer. You can go and knock on somebody's door. But if I go offshore, just say, for example, I was to go offshore tomorrow, do my three-week trip, and I get home, I could get a forecast saying, uh, oh, you're no longer acquired, John. Oh, who do I turn to then? I can't just go and knock on, some, on a manager's door and say, excuse me, I've been told I'm uh, no longer employed. 
because there's no one to contact. It's just a phone number in Aberdeen, and obviously they can soon ignore you. And it's happened to me before that, where you've come off the job, you think you're going back and you're planning things, you might have booked a holiday or anything. Mm-hmm. And then they don't phone you till two days before you're due back with a check-in. So they'll say, right, John, uh, your check-in is 9.40 at Bristow's on Friday morning. Okay, thank you. So that Wednesday, you might get the phone call saying, uh, are you you're no longer acquired? It happens all the time, that. It's something that you, you learn to live with, Tina. I'm not whinging about it. I, I learned to live with it. I know people who've been employed regularly since they left school, say for 10 or 15 years in a job, and if that happened to them, their whole world would collapse around them because they're not used to it. Whereas I'm used to being a contractor and used to being, <laughs> used to being basically just dumped to the side if, uh, if it suits the company. I mean, I suppose it is something that you learn to live with, but at the same time, and I know you're somebody you'd never, you don't sort of moan about anything, but nonetheless, I mean, that, how does it make you feel though, John, knowing, I mean, it, it must be something that sort of affects you or bothers you a certain extent that you are at the mercy of other people in that way. You know, you don't have as much control over you know, your life as, as you might want to. Well, it's just, it's something that you learn to live with, Tina, really. It's not ideal, but you just learn to live with it. And sometimes I'd look back on it and I'd think to myself, well, I'd rather be jumping about in different places offshore than stuck in a factory at the end of the road where it's just the monotony of it all. At least I get a bit of excitement in my life. But again, obviously, you want to be employed. The old adage is in our game is you're just a number and that's all you are. Like I said, I've been offshore now for 15 years and the job was for four trips that I went offshore for, which is obviously eight weeks work, uh, 16 weeks work. But then that just led on to another job, onto another job, and onto another job. But I, I, I don't know how many oil rigs I've worked on. I've worked on loads and loads and loads. And you just get used to it. You get used to it. And Kathleen's had to get used to it. That's the difficult thing. Mm. I was going to ask about that in terms of the impact it, it has on you know, families, whether it's your own or what you've observed with others, really? Well, Kathleen ended up, like me, getting used to it. But I know it was worrying for her at first when I came up out of work because she's wondering how the mortgage is going to get paid and this, that and the other. But she knows now that I've got a good reputation. I'm very employable. Even at my age, I'm still fit enough to do my job. And she's, she's learned to live with it. And she doesn't worry now. She doesn't worry now. She's used to it. And the kids are used to it anyway. But I did give the kids a choice years and years ago when they were little that I either, because I could have had a job at home, but it was only for a couple of years. And I said, I can either work at home or I can work offshore. And James was eight at the time. Elnor was only four. Elnor said, home. And James said, no, work offshore because we see more of you when you're offshore. I could take them to school and pick them up and such. Whereas if I was working at home, I'd only see them for a couple of hours a night. Mm. So sometimes it works out. Yeah, I guess like most things, there's always there's, there's pros and cons and everything, isn't there, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not ideal being stuck in a, in a box in the North Sea, but you've just got to make the most of it. And most of the people I work with make the most of it and they're fine. The good, you know, you work with a good set of men and women. There's women offshore, of course. And you do get a camaraderie as well within the platforms. I'm lucky that the platform I'm on, everybody likes it. Even people come on just for one or two trips. 
they enjoy it. It's well run. It's well run from the top down. And I think that's what you've got to have. If you've got good management, everything else just falls into place. But if you have bad management and you have a bad feeling, that spreads. People sense it. So I'm lucky that the Rigamon is a nice place. And I know you said a moment ago about, you know, in your business, you're just a number. But when you're on the platform in that smaller environment, do you feel do you feel a bit more like you do actually matter? Oh, yeah, you're definitely part of the cog that keeps the place running. Yeah. Yeah, well, we all have a job to do. So tell me a bit more about what Middlesbrough is like now. I mean, it's changed again. Yeah, I mean, I was looking up sort of, a, you know, as preparation before we had this chat and, I can see that there's been sort of, you know, quite a dramatic change in the demographics in Middlesbrough over recent, recent years. And it's, I think, become increasingly sort of gone up the charts in, in deprivation in the whole of England. Anyway, I think it ranks sixth in the whole of England. I mean, what's it like in Middlesbrough? Tell, tell us a bit about the town. That doesn't sound like good reading, does it really, Tina? That I mean, but obviously it's a place of our birth. It's a place where I've grown up. It's like any town or city, there's lovely places. It's got some nice nice areas. But the town centre now is just getting so run down. And the surrounding housing, and it, well, it used to be a lot of terraced housing. Most of that's getting flattened, actually. But there's still quite a lot there. Like, you know, your Coronation Street type uh, housing. Hmm. I mean, the town centre, you go in the town centre now, it's Mostly, it's not mostly charity shops, but there's charity shops everywhere. Debenhams has just closed down. It's a beautiful building, five floors, escalators and lifts to each floor. That's going to stand derelict now, forever, as far as I think. If that was in Leeds or Newcastle, that would be developed. That would be developed into restaurants and bars and leisure facilities. It's just going to stand empty. Because nobody wants to go anyway. Yeah. No, no, because the there's no investment in the town centre. I remember going to Newcastle in about 1975. Obviously, I was only a boy. I was only 15 when I was going to a football match. And I got off the train at Newcastle and I thought, what a dump this is. It looked terrible. There was there was shops boarded up and everything. Middlesbrough was booming then. Middlesbrough was absolutely booming in 75 because of the new steelworks getting built. And now it's just a complete role reversal. The amount of money has been invested in Newcastle. I know it's a bigger city, but I just see that getting better and Middlesbrough getting worse. Things may pick up. Things are starting to pick up a little bit. I know the steelworks have closed down, but we're trying to get uh, new industry there. And it, it's no good. It's all right developing small, independent businesses, but Teesside needs to be, it needs industry. It's got to have every industry. And I think we're getting uh, GC investing in a wind farm due to the free part. Mm. So hopefully that will bring a lot more industry that will keep people employed and then people will start spending again. And I, I mean, I was going to ask you about how you feel, albeit, you know, Middlesbrough, the town is in, you know, quite a bleak situation and the prospects there don't sound great as far as the sort of surrounding area and what the plans are for, like you say, the Freeport and, and now that the airport's been secured and, you know, there's talk of a lot of, and indeed promise of a lot of new investment. I mean, do you feel things are starting to feel a bit more optimistic? Yeah, it seems that way, Tina. I mean, uh, Ben Houchin seems to be doing a great job. I was a little bit... Uh, 
being a Tory. (laughs) 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 He's doing what he said he'd do. Yeah. And that is a very, very rare thing these days. Very rare. Well, in any part of the streets, rare. He seems to be sticking to his word. He just seems to be doing a real good job. And and that's actually got tongues wagging back to Newcastle. Now they're... Their councillors are saying uh, Middlesbrough getting this, Middlesbrough getting that, or Teesside's getting this, Teesside's getting that, because they've got a, a Conservative uh, mayor. Well, we're getting it because he's he's making it work, he's making it happen. He seems more like a, a Labour man to me, but there you go. <laughs> oh, come on, John. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, I can't fault him. I can't <laughs> <laughs> I can't fault him, Tina. I can't. He's not full of empty promises, which so many councillors and mayors are. He's coming up trumps. Yeah. He's talking the talk and he's walking the walk. Did he even get your vote, John, earlier this year? Well, I shouldn't admit it, but yes, he did. <laughs> I, hope, I hope none of my family listen to this. <laughs> uh, but it's, I mean, it's fascinating how things are changing in the area. You know, see all these different previously stronghold Labour seats turning Conservative. I mean, it's it's amazing, really. Well, nobody's more shocked than me. I couldn't believe it when the Tories won Hartlepool. I couldn't believe it. I didn't think they'd ever get a chance in there. But I just think people at Teesside are being used anyway because Labour knew they were always going to get our vote. And they never did anything for us. The Tories knew they were never going to get our vote. And they never did anything for us. That's, I think that's how we feel. Mm. But, I, I mean, even Boris was up in Hartlepool and he's throwing himself about. And, but I don't mind voting in a local election, Tory, but I don't know if, if I could go the full hog in a general election. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's, there's no left and right now, we know that. It's, they're all meeting in the middle, but I still, I don't know. I don't think I'd bring myself to do it voted for Labour in the last general election, even though I knew I was fighting a losing battle with it. Mm. But I couldn't see anything from anybody else that suited me either. So, I mean, you've still got in your seat where you are, you've still got a Labour MP. I mean, you Middlesbrough, the constituency is... Um... Andy MacDonald, he went to my school, he's a couple of years older than me. I remember seeing him when I used to go to church, I used to see him in church regular. Seems a decent enough lad. He's fighting a losing battle as well because of bad national press. The press hammer, the hammer Labour every chance they get. Oh, that's what I seem to see. I mean, when when Corbyn went on on stage with Theresa May, I thought he turned her inside out. I thought he came across really, really well. But the press hammered him. Mm. Well, I mean, in a way, I think the point that you made that there isn't left and right now, things don't split anymore in quite this sort of neat way you know between parties in the way they used to really I think the picture's just that much more complicated um, yeah well it is yeah and they, and they do say we meet in the middle I mean even Boris when he got elected he said he would uh, thank the people of the north didn't he for getting him in yeah he said he'd do everything he can for him well unfortunately he hasn't been able to do anything because of the pandemic so we don't know how it would have panned out I think he's done all right with the pandemic because it's something none of us have ever experienced so we don't know we're learning all the time, obviously, but we don't know. We couldn't react fast enough because we didn't know how to react. And always got away with it. But once this washes away, I think the vultures will come out as well and we'll just see how he handles that. 
we'll come back to that. Maybe we'll have a, re, a return recorded conversation <laughs> in the future. You can, you can tell me your views on that then. I mean, I, I guess just to sort of wrap up, John, I mean, you know, how would you like to see Middlesbrough the town, you know, in the future? I mean, what hopes do you have for the town? Well, it's got to be invested in, but you can't just throw money at a ghost town and expect it to become Harrogate overnight. Uh, it's not going to happen. So we need industry, we need work, and, we need, and all these people, all these immigrants who are coming over, that I have no qualms with at all because of poor souls, what they're leaving behind them, get them working, get them made to feel part of the community as well, and just get some money invested in it. We need the money invested in the industry, and the rest will, will work itself out because the economy will follow. Mm. I mean, the town centre, can we develop it? Are our town centres going that way? Well, I mean, certainly they're struggling generally, aren't they, with, with all sorts of different structural changes, whether it's the internet and everything else. But there are towns that are thriving. You know, there are towns that have found a way of staying prosperous and attractive to people and still drawing a crowd. But, you know, I mean, like you say, I mean, they've got to be places where the people who are either living there or in charge of them really care about that town. And that will come from... You know, the leadership, the political leadership. I mean, you've talked about Ben Houchin. There should be other people, I hope, who would be able to set the similar sort of tone and to make, you know, you all as local people feel sort of, you know, you can have a sense of pride, not just in yourselves as individuals, wherever you end up having to go to find work, but actually sort of in the place that you live and the place which is your home. That's the sort of thing that I think is necessary, but it, it's not easy. None of this is easy. And, you know, if you are faced with a decades of neglect in a way, which, I mean, you know, and I think what you've said is quite interesting in the way that you've touched on it with, you know, the attitude of, you know, the big bosses in different industries over the years, not investing, not seeing the sort of, you know, the importance and the value in quality, all that sort of thing, you know, there needs to be a bit of a sort of rethink and a, a change of mindset really so I mean I don't know I mean I, I just hope that you know there are the people there who can do it but I do think you know I've never met Ben Houchin but what I've read about him and what I've heard about him I think you know all power to him and and I I hope that he's able to continue and attract more people like him onto his team you need a critical mass of that sort of leadership yeah like I say Tina I can't fault him he's He's one of the few local political people that he's actually doing what he said he'd do because a lot of it is false promises, isn't it? But he's he's coming up trumps regarding that. Fair play to him. Mm. And if I see him, I'll buy him a pint and I'll tell him I was starting again. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably say, who? <laughs> uh, he'll know, yeah, he'll know. Oh, dear. Okay, well, John, thank you so much for talking to me and letting us record this conversation and I think you've got some you know really fascinating insights and it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and I'm glad that we've done this and hopefully other people will listen to you as well. Right thank you Tina it's lovely speaking to you again and we'll have to get you back up Middlesbrough. Oh I'll be there. I won't take you to the bad places <laughs> I'll just take you to the nice places. Now, well, there's lots of nice places, as you showed me before. So I know, I know, there is, there is, there is some beautiful parts, but we like to keep it secret because we don't want all them southerners coming up here and spoiling it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I look forward to it, John. Lovely, Tina. All right, take care. 
Okay, and you. Bye-bye now. Bye. I think John's story illustrates powerfully just why people in Teesside were willing to give Ben Houchen a go when the post of mayor was first created. Here was someone who was one of them, had a clear vision and a plan for how things could be better in the future, instead of going on about why things went wrong in the past. When it comes to local politics, ideology counts for little. It's practical solutions that matter. What I think will be interesting over the next few years, especially if more areas decide to adopt the city region or county mayor approach, is the relationship between national and local politics in the minds of voters. And just how big an influence these mayors could have on the way that national politics operates in our country. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you also listen to future episodes. If you subscribe, you won't be able to miss them. Thanks again and bye for now.